Coffee, Petaluma, California. My name is Darian Gold, and I teach Pilates. From my very first Pilates lesson in 1992, I knew the Pilates method would rock the world, and it has. Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCLP, KPCALP, Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. I haven't been in the studio for well over a month. It's good to be back here and be able to welcome our guests today and pursue conversations that we hope will teach our Petaluma community that we at the local level have opportunities and leaders and people who help us make a better world in which to live in spite of sometimes overwhelming politics of the world around us. So this morning, our first guest is Tom Isaac. Uh, who is uh, the CEO of Corsco Corporation. And, uh, wow, he's been in this community a long time. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, it's good to have you here. What's it like to be on radio now? I look pretty well, don't I? You look great. Thank you. You look great. You look great. I had him dressed for the occasion of being on radio today. So t- tell us, uh, Tom Isaac, we know the Mary Isaac Center in town, and the Isaac name is out there, and uh, tell us a little bit about your family history and being in Petaluma, and if you can keep that down to a half an hour, we'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we moved here in 1953. Um, my father, I'm first generation, my father was born in Russia. Um, and uh, Petaluma became our home because my father announced in 1953 when he was teaching at Cal that he was sick of the adolescent mind and wanted to raise chickens. I think he'd read too much Tolstoy or something. <laughs> and we came to Petaluma, and it has been a wonderful place to grow up and live, and I can't imagine uh, leaving. Wow, so what's been good about it? What what? What was there about it? That it was 10,000 people when I moved here, Ted. Uh-huh. And uh, I went to a rural school, Cinnabar. Uh, I made friends there that are still friends. Um, and that's, I think, an increasingly rare experience in modern America uh, to actually know for a lifetime the youth and others you went to school with as a young, young person. Um, and uh, all of my siblings are pretty nearby. One has a house here, but she lives in New York where she is a restaurateur. Um, other siblings are close at hand. Uh, there are five of us. Um, my father did end up going back to the university because the chicken business changed a lot in the 50s. Uh, we are no longer the egg basket of the world. Um, and that had its implications for our family. And uh, my dad went back to both teaching at Cal and waiting table at the Green Mill, among other places. When you have five kids and you're a teacher, you do what you got to do. You do. Uh, what was he teaching? English literature. English literature. He okay. also uh, did tra- technical translating in weekends at the kitchen table at a X amount of money per word uh, from Russian and German into English and vice versa. And he had his skills, but none of them were highly remunerated. Ah, ah. So you grew up in this community. It's interesting you say that it's rare to be um, in a place where your siblings, where you grew up, 
it, this mobility in America has changed the whole structure of the family and how it operates. I remember I was in, uh, I lived in Berkeley for a while and was the director of a Jewish agency over there. And the son of one of my board members, I was talking to him. Uh, Alta Bates Hospital is right there. Where I was and born. The father's, oh, you were born in Alta Bates. His father's house was the, the block on the other side and of Alta Bates Hospital. And the, the son tells me, well, he grew up in his father's house. He was born at Alta Bates, and he's married now, and he lives on the other side of Alta Bates. <laughs> How many people do we know that live within a quarter of a mile of where they came into the world anymore, at least in, yeah. in American civilization? Well, so my a, Uncle Bob, at 91, was on his last legs, and he was on the third floor of a hospital building in Eugene, and I was with him on the last day, and he said it was his birthday. Uh -huh. And he said, Tom, do you know where I was 91 years ago today? He points out the window at a little house on the corner. He says, I was born in that house. Yeah, it's an amazing. It's just, uh, it just doesn't happen so much, uh, so in, much. in our world anymore. So uh, you're pretty active in our community and uh, the golf course business. How, first of all, how did you get into that and how long have you been doing it? And what's that? 30 years this year. Uh -huh. And by the way, I'm no longer CEO. Oh, you're not. I okay. appointed a CEO last year. I am now chairman. Okay. Semi-retired. Okay. Um, I started the business very consciously. I donated a year to a friend of mine running for mayor of San Francisco. And in that year, I decided, well, what am I really going to do next for a living? Um, and uh, I decided to start a golf management company, and uh, today we're, we're about 1,500 employees and 38 properties in five states. Wow. And uh, the company has grown nicely. Um, uh, my first career was in politics and government, and it was quite different, but the principles of outreach, listening to voters, are not so different than in business, where you better be listening to your customers and reaching out to them. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, this whole golf course thing, is, um, I mean, it's a very Jewish thing to do because hole-in-one and holy-one are very close to each other. Uh, and we know that. So I know you're in this same business that I am, you know. You wind up, maybe there's some confusion there. So so we, we know the Isaac name broadly in the community from the Mary Isaac Center and the Cots program. And could you t I think your family had a lot to do with that getting started. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Um, sure. I think COTS celebrated its 30th anniversary last year, so it's 31 years now. And it was at the beginning of that period that my mother, Mary, and her dear friend, Laura Rychek, um saw a family sleeping under a bridge, and it shocked them. I mean, obviously, I'm compressing this a little. So they rolled up their sleeves and they started using church basements for housing people. They had wonderful support from people like Tim Kelgren. Um, and it grew uh, to the point where the board, headed by my mother at that time, hired uh, John Records. Mm -hmm. And I really attribute much of the building of Cots to John Records. He was an unusual leader and built an organization that wasn't just compassionate, but extremely effective and efficient. Um, and they did us the honor some years later when they built a large uh, facility, which is the headquarters for COTS, and named it the Mary Isaac Center after the old mom. Yeah, that's wonderful. 
That's wonderful. I, I can't imagine what it feels like when you hear it referred to as the Mary Isaac Center. And, you know, that's your mom. And uh, it, it evokes all kinds of things for you, I'm sure. The, uh, and the role that she played in making sure that something like that came to be in town to take care of the homeless. That's a big deal. Uh, John left uh, our community about five years ago. I lost track of time here a little bit. But John comes back regularly. Yeah. He's doing some marvelous work in the community, and he loves it here. He's living in Colorado, high up on a ridge with a beautiful view. Uh-huh. Uh, but his heart is here still in yeah. many respects. And his his ultimate successor after Mike Johnson, Chuck Fernandez, the new executive director, has just taken hold beautifully, in my view. And I'm not expert in this. Um, but I think it's a it's a good day for Cots and a good day looking forward. Well, this whole issue of uh, homelessness and the attendant piece, which is housing itself, and the availability of housing is really complicated and a sad story. I saw the article this morning uh, in the Argus Courier that only 7% of the impending uh, building in town is going to be affordable housing and all the complications that come with that. Insufficient. Uh, my dear friend Art Agnos, the former mayor of San Francisco, is still very active, and one of the things he's active in is affordable housing. And when he's been told, oh, you can't get a developer to do a development in San Francisco if you require more than 20% affordable housing, which has sort of become the norm. Art just finished a negotiation, and it's 30% affordable housing, and the developer still can make money and go ahead. So it is economics and other things. What do you think is happening here? I don't know much about it. Okay, I really don't. Fair, All I know fair. is that okay. no one can afford the rent, right. no one can afford to buy a house, but um, there's a lot of tension between people, where people want to be and where people want to come. And zoning rules and regulations and all things come into play, and it's really at the crux of of community life is affordability. Yeah, and it's it, as you say, it's very complicated both financially and legally and policy-wise to try to figure out uh, the best way. Uh, actually, the Petaluma Community Relations Council is preparing future programs on issues of affordability in Petaluma to try to have us look at what all of these issues are and they're all intimately tied together. The environment, uh, wages, uh, building, uh, regulations, policy. It's just a complex issue. And uh, uh, attacking the homeless issue that Cotts works on and the residents at the Mary Isaac Center uh, struggling with being able to make it out in the world. Uh, add to that the issues of mental illness and how we care for the mentally ill in our community just uh, makes it a, 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 a challenge for all of us who want a community that is strong and good and compassionate and people can live in it. I, I, I agree. It is our duty and our responsibility as a community. Um, I will say I had one experience with COTS that really uh, drove home how fundamentally important it is. I was in uh, the hospital on my mother's last visit, and I couldn't understand why so many people were attending her. So I took the head nurse aside, and I said, why two doctors and five nurses and all? And she said, well, 
I'll tell you what, I'm a nurse and my husband is a cop. And she said, the Mary Isaac Center changed our lives, meaning our work lives. Because those homeless people would end up on the threshold of the hospital or hauled off in a cop car. And COTS changed all of that. And the business community, I hope, does. I think they do and recognize that what a difference it makes in a business environment to not have your streets look like San Rafael has at times or other places. So there's some larger practical, even financial aspects to being able to assist the homeless and take them in a place that isn't on the street uh, and guide them toward permanent housing, which is Cox's mission. And, of course, they've expanded their programs up into Santa Rosa oh my, and yes. lots of different places. And one of the things that uh, impressions that Mike Johnson had left with me when he was here was the reminder that the fires, uh, w- the implication of the fires in 2017 will hit our community for n- a number of years, and we're still part of that rebuilding process, which again is tied into all these housing issues, affordability issues, the level of rent. And we do celebrate and appreciate uh, presence in our community. It's really a, a, a good thing. It sure is. So, how many, other boor- how many other boards? Well, how many boards are you on in the community? What are you What are you involved in? I'm on the board of the Petaluma Health Center. Yeah. Which serves oh 180,000 patient visits a year. About 35,000 people mm-hmm. uh, make that their center for for uh, all their health care, from dental and mental health to prenatal, etc. Um, I I get my own health care there. Uh, I'm on that board. And you mentioned the fires. Boy, did, did the health center turn out when uh, when the fires hit. Remarkable job. Um, the Petaluma Health Center, which also includes Roner Park, where there's a full clinic and six other sites that the Petaluma Health Center serves through, um, is 25 years old this year. And I'm not sure how much we notice it, but gosh, when you think 35,000 people make their health care home there, that's a lot of Petaluma families touched. That is. Yeah. That is. I'm very proud of that work. They're in the top five percent of national, of federally uh, sanctioned health healthcare service uh, organizations, and uh, they're perpetually um, ringing the gong of quality. Really, uh, uh, remarkable organization. Not yeah. through my good offices. I've only been on the board two years. Yeah. Well, we had a guest from the health center here a couple of months ago, Kelly, the uh, develop business development director. Yeah. And uh, I took a tour over there. And all I can say, I've been in the community 14 years. And when I first came, the health center was, okay, it's over there and all this. But it's, it's come so far yeah, over these years. Yeah. And uh, yeah. again, second what you're saying about its Thank you. importance and its presence cool. here. Yeah. Any other boards you're on? Um, I'm on the board of the First Tee of the North Coast, which is a reforming organization to bring disadvantaged youth into golf mm-hmm. for purposes not of providing recreation as much as to teach life lessons. Uh, golf is pretty pretty good at teaching things like uh, self-reliance and uh, honesty and uh, other patience. <laughs> don't, uh, don't cuss too loud on the golf course when you miss the putt. Um, I'm on that board. Well, bowling does the same thing for me. If, you know, it's the patient. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm on the board of a, of a organization in Oakland called the Oakland Turfgrass Education Initiative. It's a, 
I started it about 20 years ago, is to bring inner-city kids into the golf course operations environment so they learn about the green industry and job possibilities. We provide internships at one of our golf courses in Oakland, um, so I'm, I'm active uh, on that board. Um, that's that's, that's the extent of my board it. service. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that is a lot. That is a lot. But uh, all of these uh, organizations uh, that are attempting to get youth to have a better course in their lives and to give them a place to learn how the lessons of life really, really important in our world. The leverage of learning things early is huge through through life. Yes, yes. I've learned so many of my important lessons only in the last 10 or 15 years. <laughs> yeah, it takes time. That's, uh, you know, it takes time to learn those lessons. When I, when I was just away for about a month and when I came home, I had a, a big stack of mail and in that stack of mail, there were probably 40 to 50 requests for donations to organizations. And it's, uh, it's so frustrating to have to not to put them all in recycling or most of them and to make those decisions so there, because there's so many places in life that, that need help and we want to make a difference. And each of us has to struggle to make those choices. And it's, it's really a... A hard one. So, your emphasis on trying to bring youth in, uh, the healthcare pieces are really those are prime things in our world. And thank you so much. Well, I've had the opportunities, and I've only said yes to some of those opportunities, and I'm the grateful one because what I've learned and and the uh, sense of community and the reinforcement of that wonderful Petaluma sense of community is uh, is very rewarding for me. So one of the things I've noticed about you over these years, because you've had a connection with me and with B'nai Israel Jewish Center, is this affinity for the Jewish community. Um, we hold a golf uh, tournament uh, at Foxville Golf Course, and uh, we are so grateful to you and the support you've given us, and it has made a big difference for us. So wh where does that piece fit into your your life. How does that get in there? How did that become part of uh, who you are? Um, it's a complicated question that I've never had a satisfactory answer to. Um, well, we have a few minutes to work it out here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm in the hands of a man who can, who can draw on, uh, on me to try and answer it. Um, I, probably friends from my early youth who were Jews uh, who remain friends, uh, people I've met along the way who I admire tremendously. Uh, uh, from a more just historic perception, I've always admired Jews, uh, the larger Jewish community at large, because, you know, they're a small tribe and they punch above their weight. They contribute in communities incomparably. Uh, they're part of the culture and the history of Petaluma. Um, and a rich part, and I see, in a sense, the Jewish communities being, well, maybe beleaguered is too strong a word, but demographics and other things make it tough uh, to keep the tribe together, and I think it's tremendously important that the Jewish community thrive within the larger community. Um, I use the word beleaguered, maybe I'll refer to 
being in Germany visiting my cousins uh, several years ago, and I got up very early walking around, jet-lagged, I suppose, and I found myself in a plaza, and it was the new synagogue um, in Munich. And, ah, I'll, I'll visit, because I'd already become involved a little bit with you, Ted, and uh, with B'nai Israel, and uh, I wanted to go in. I wanted to see the place, and I went through a double glass door, and immediately I encountered a bar, which wouldn't let me pass. I turned to my left, and behind a very thick glass wall was a guy in full military regalia holding a machine gun. And through the little hole in the glass, he said, yes, and I told him I was here to look around. I'm a visitor from America. And he said, what synagogue are you a member of? And I said, well, I'm not. And he said, well, you can't come in. And that was that. And I told that story to some members of your synagogue, Ted, when I came back, and I think that may be part of what led eventually to you and your people inviting me and making me a life member, uh, which is something I'm very, very proud of. But, boy, I got a sense of what beleaguered means when I saw that, well, essentially an armed fortress to practice faith in, in ground zero for what we all know was a disaster. And uh, it goes on, but it goes on with high, strong walls in, in Munich. It's uh, the sad part also on top of that one is that they wouldn't let you in without a positive answer to that question. That's hard for me to imagine. And number two, uh, I was just in uh, Boca Raton, Florida to a congregation I had served uh, back in the 80s and there's a whole new campus, a huge, beautiful building, and all of this. There's a guard post, an armed guard at a gate. You have to check in. We went into the building, and there's uh, metal detectors and two armed guards standing there checking everybody's bags in order to get in to be able to pray. And we want to make our institutions welcoming and people should come into our midst, and yet we have to undergo uh, these days, even in America now, some of the same things. I remember being in Europe 15, 20 years ago and walking, I think I was uh, in Rome in one of the synagogues there, and there were Uzi machine guns all around the outside and metal detectors and the same things, and in Turkey in the synagogue and uh, finger readers and all that. Etc. So it's uh, it's a really important. You know, it's, it's what's happening in our world today. It's what's happening in our world today. So your uh, and of course yes, uh, Jim is pointing out to me next to to say that we have our own security here at B'nai Israel because having to lock our door and, and undergo the same processes. So this affinity, uh, what's it like when you you come to services occasionally? What's that like for you to be there? Uh, I I participate with a bit of wonder. Uh, Um, Like what's going on? Well, I realize how much I don't know. Uh, Um, uh, uh, But I feel good being there, Uh, and I particularly enjoy the warmth of the people. Uh, my friend Jay Silverberg uh, came to one of the early golf tournaments that we started. This will be our 11th year for the tournament. Yeah. Uh, Jay came to one of the early ones, and he was kind of a refugee from his former uh, synagogue, which is in a nearby county I won't name, and he found it stuffy. He found it a little pretentious, um, but he participated because of his faith. 
And then he, then he stepped away, kind of backslid. And when he met the people at dinner after the tournament in that first year, it turned him back toward his Jewish roots. He joined the synagogue as a result of that, and he's just rejoined in Reston, Virginia, where he's moved to be with his grandchildren. And that's a little bit of the experience I've had. Being around those people in that congregation is just a delight. Well, thank you. And I, I, for me, I think uh, what I hope we can emphasize is what's, the building is fine. I mean, we need to take care of the building and have a beautiful building, but ultimately it's the relationships and what happens in that building that is the key to the existence of the community. And uh, this testimony, so to speak, of what it's like for you when you come in there is really important for us to hear. And I can only hope that other people experience the same thing uh, when they uh, come into our midst. Um, so here you are. You're at this stage uh, semi-retired. Whatever that, however you define that, is that working uh, 60 hours a week instead of 90 or 40 instead of 70, whatever, whatever that is. Um, what do you see happening in the years ahead for you? Well, I'd, I, I would hope to be used by my company for hopefully my judgment and experience rather than my diligence. <laughs> um, and I have a team that is just marvelous. People have been with me for well over a decade who are running the company day to day, so I'm free. And um, I plan to do more at the health center. Uh, I want to focus, as we are in right now, on this year's tournament for the synagogue. What's the date? Do we have a date? October yet? 18th. Yeah, October 18th. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to just shout out, as they say, Jeff Krause, who's been involved in this tournament from the beginning, and in a way, he's the beating heart of it. Uh, Irv Petrakowski, also, who's, who's the chairman of the tournament, um, uh, I've just been marvelous. Many others help, um, but we're looking forward to this year, and I plan to focus on that for the next couple of months and see if we can get it even better than it's been in the past. Well, we please know how appreciative we are and how much it makes a difference uh, for our community to be able to have that tournament. And it's, it's, and for me, it's not just when I come to the dinner, I'm not a golfer, but when I come to the dinner, it's that feeling of community and connection of this very diverse group of people that has come together. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for coming to uh, visit us in the studio today. You told me you were a little concerned about being on radio, but here you are. You made it through. You survived it. And thank you very much for all you do, not just for the Jewish community, of course, but for all of Petaluma, your home. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Please join us for our second segment in three minutes.
Good morning, Petaluma. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted here on KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Our second segment today, we welcome to the studio Janice Cater Thompson uh, to uh, enlighten us as to our great world here in Petaluma. Great to have you in the studio today. It's Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to see you smiling. <laughs> it's nice to see you smiling. You must not read the morning newspapers. I didn't read the newspapers this morning, and I didn't watch the news this morning. No wonder you're smiling. Uh, exactly, exactly. But believe me, I watch it every day. I'm sure you do. I'm, gonna, I'm sure you yeah. do. Well, uh, Janice Cater uh, Thompson is a familiar name in Petaluma. Uh, she's been active in our community for many, many years, having served on city council and uh, an activist, uh, constantly uh, vigilant, uh, watching how our community is uh, developing itself and responding to the great needs that we have around us. So we're going to try to solve all the problems in the next 25 minutes or so. Um, okay. Housing, transportation gas stations, um, what else do we need? This, uh, climate issues, <laughs> we, we should be able to cover it. I don't know if we'll get to health care during this period of time. but uh, we'll, we'll, they, they all work together. They're they all do. intertwined. They you are can't have one without the other. That part is true. Yeah. That part is true. So before we embark on some uh, observations about Petaluma and stuff like that, um, tell us a little bit about your background. One of my goals on the program is to... Uh, introduce to the community the people who affect our lives in all kinds of different ways and to learn a little bit about them. So tell us about your background, your family and the community when they came here, um, how you got engaged in the community, all that kind of good stuff. Well, um, my grandparents, the Caters, came to Petaluma in 1913. They came from Lithuania and Latvia mm -hmm. via um, New York and then they went to Boston and then came to Petaluma, and and they actually um, lived where Schollenberger Park is. There was a tallow plant there called Cater Lane, and there was a house there. And I have a picture of the house, and my grandmother was a horse rider, and my grandfather was, and so they had a tallow plant, and that's hence Cater Lane, where it hits into um, Schollenberger. And then the Fishman, my mother's side of the family, came in 1919, and they came, uh, my grandfather came actually before my grandmother, and they were from Poland, uh, Russia, and they came through New York and then went to Minneapolis, my grandfather. Then my grandmother came three years later, and she lost a baby when she was in the old country, as we call it, but you don't hear that anymore. She came via, um, through China, and then to, so she went the Siberian Rail to China, and then she came through Seattle, and then from Seattle, she ended up in Minneapolis. And, but when she came into Seattle, they were having, it was Halloween, and so she was seeing all these people in costumes, and she goes, what is this Michigan of a country that I'm moving into? And so we're not really sure how she ended up getting to Minneapolis, but we do have papers that my grandfather worked very hard to get her to this country. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the Fishmans and the Barlesses and the Vanatek family, which you don't know about, right, we've right. been friends with them for about a long time, 100 years. Um, then they all ended up moving to Petaluma together because the Barlesses and my and the Fishmans are related. Uh, the Barlesses' grandmother Esther and my grandfather were first cousins. Okay, yeah. So that's how we got to Petaluma. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, 
that's a, it's a, the history of the community here and the families coming in. It's yeah. fascinating. You know the big picture that's at the temple? Uh-huh. I see my grandmother in this one picture, and I kept seeing this other woman saying, oh, my God, this is my, my, my aunt. I thought it was my Aunt Mildred. And then I started getting on one of those ancestry um, um, programs on the Internet, and they were looking for this woman named Minnie Epstein. And I found her gravestone before my mother died. She pointed the gravestone out to me and said, that's your grandmother's sister. Wow. She died in 1945, I believe. And it was not, and so they're looking for a picture of her. That is the only picture. I'm sure that's Minnie. It couldn't have been my grandmother's daughter because she probably was an infant. Right. But, uh, but yeah. they look so much alike. Yeah, so there's this huge, there's this big picture at B'nai Israel for our listeners to know that uh, from the dedication of the building in August of 1925. And it's, uh, the whole community has gathered there in this photo. And it's fascinating, the, this history that sits in this one picture. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah. I see other people I recognize also, and it's shocking to see how close. My cousin Leland Fishman looks just like right. someone in the picture, but they're related to the Barlesses two ways. Versus us. So the bottom line of all that is you have to be careful about who you speak in town. <laughs> and who you marry. <laughs> yeah, and who you marry because it gets very dangerous. That's very right. dangerous. That's right. yes. Yeah. So how did you get uh, community involved? What was it like? Where did that Well, I went to dental hygiene school as an adult. I had three children. Mm-hmm. And I realized I wanted a career. And I was not accepted into a dental hygiene program. This is in 1990. This is in 2000. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, one day on an August, I get a call from the director of the program saying I could start this program in Santa Cruz. And I had one day to make a decision and 12 days to pack my van and move. So I left the kids here with Jerry. And I moved to Santa Cruz, became a dental hygienist. Two years later, uh-huh. um, I came back home. And, and then I became a dental hygienist. <laughs> And so okay. <laughs> it was, so that's, that, that's one, um, one thing that I had done, but then somebody knocked on my door about an issue and I started getting involved in politics. But as I was growing up, I always wanted to be three things. I wanted to be a dental hygienist as a child. Really? Okay. I wanted to be a dental hygienist. I wanted to be a politician and I wanted to be a lawyer. So I missed one of them. It's, it sounds <laughs> like a setup for a joke. I know, but it's not. <laughs> well, yeah, the joke was on me. I should have stayed back. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so, um, wow. okay. so I did that, and then uh, then I started getting involved in local politics. Yeah. And I was actually petrified to speak in front of people. So I would go to the city council meetings and speak, and my tongue would stick to my palate because I was so nervous. I actually had panic attacks speaking, believe it or not, and if I don't know my subject. But if I know my subject, I'm fine. And so I always like to know what I'm doing. I don't like to just go in there and wing it. I need to know all the information before I jump in on any issue. And that's important. When did you serve on city council? Um, 1998 to 2002. Uh Um, And it was really Basin Street that worked hard to get me off. I lost by 67 votes. And then they put this guy, Keith Canavero, in because they wanted um, projects approved with no discussion, and then he was on for two years and then left the city because he was really not from Petaluma. Mm. And so he, so this is how politics has been run in Petaluma until recently when Basin Street, with the new city council, Basin Street does not have the clout that they had. But they basically ran who was going to be on the city council. Mm. And this is all fact. I mean, this isn't, you know, fiction. Right. So I'm not telling tales. Right. So right. It's, it's amazing how the power that um, one developer can have. Well, and of course... Uh, we were just, Tom Isaac was just on the program uh, for the first segment, and we were talking about housing issues in particular because of COTS and all that. And um, 
how complicated it is that developers and the paper this morning reports only a 7% affordable housing uh, coming right. uh, coming up. It's just, right. It's just well, if, if you look at the list of affordable housing, there was no affordable housing. Right. And, you know, and this was set up before the new council came in. Mm-hmm. And so for, you know, when you have council members on for so long, they are running behind the scenes how everything is run in this town. And that's why I am so happy that we have three progressive council members on, and we have a few extra others that will um, support certain projects, because now you have to, because the public is really watching climate change, um, transportation. They, they're going to have to look at it a lot differently now with our new city council, yeah. I hope. Yeah, you just used the word progressive, and I'm, uh, I, I've, I've been bothered by these labels. Me too. Uh, because... Um, for instance, if uh, if I were to say something about national politics, then I'm this or I'm that, and uh, it gets complicated using those labels. Uh, it's better just to really say it's people that actually do their homework, they read the documents, and they ask questions. Right. Those are the kind of people that I want in the city council, not somebody that just goes along because they're there. And that's what we have. We, we still have that on the council. Yeah. So, it, so I agree with the label. It is not good to have labels. Labels are difficult, and uh, I know in the city manager system also there's a there's an expectation that well we hired this person to make recommendations to the council to do the research to prepare the documents with his staff, so therefore they must be right when they do it, uh, and therefore it's, we we have to endorse what's presented to us. So there is that feeling too in the city manager system that comes out. Well, that's the value of institutional knowledge. And I will say our new city manager, Peggy Flynn, has really reached out to a lot of different people. She gets the institutional knowledge. She's from this area. She understands it, and she listens. Um, I I personally have met with her for about two and a half hours early on. A lot of other people have. And so she's hearing all these different people's points of view. And she's very perceptive. But you have to remember one thing. She works for the city council, and four votes make it. If it's right. a four, you know, you have four votes. It doesn't matter if it's a good project, a bad project. That is, right. that's what happens. Yeah, she and actually has sat in that chair. I had her oh, here. Great. I had her here after she was in town four weeks, and she really told me she had spent most of the four weeks listening, just going around, exactly. meeting the different institutional yeah. people, and yeah. trying to figure out get the lay of the land so she could function as a city manager. I'm thrilled that she's here. I think she's very proactive. Yeah, I think so. Not I reactive. She left of a, a very positive impression yeah. with everybody that with whom I've spoken. Yeah. And so that part has been good. So um, have things changed much since you were on city council? Oh, things have changed dramatically because I like to look at things 20 to 25 years out. And things that I said 25 years ago are happening today. Mm. And this is the problem with politics. We do, we look in a box, we just do what's today, and we don't look 25 years out. And finally, 25 years later, um, things that I have said are coming, you know, true. And it's specifically transportation. Transportation is something I love. I love, I love the wastewater plant. I love underground. I like to look at a city as, as a map. And, and I project out. And I look at the city as four quadrants. But what's underground is as important what's above the ground. Because we can't have above the ground without the underground. 
and and it all ties together. But I love transportation. So talk about it. What well, do transportation. About transportation. I I am actually have always been a proponent that the Corona overcrossing needs to be updated. It should have been a full interchange, but in the nineteen 90s, the city manager gave away some of those rights for on and off ramps because Caltrans always said, let's do Corona. They are not a supporter of Rainier, have never been a supporter of Rainier, and the documents show that. Because Rainier is a half a mile long, it's shaped like a question mark, it goes from one end of town to another, it's, it goes to two T's in our community, where Corona is a regional road. And if you go down there and you just spend about an hour, hour and a half at the Corona um, overcrossing, roundabout where it hits Sonoma Mountain Parkway, the city was not looking at regional traffic. Corona is a regional traffic road, and you see all these trucks now going through, down, going down Corona. We have, a, we have a horrible truck problem in Petaluma because we have not looked at transportation. We haven't looked at how transportation moves. And Corona would have always been the best option for a crosstown connector and interchange because of the size. It, it just goes across the freeway. And we do have to go across the river in one area. But in the 1970s, the Corona overcrossing was actually um, redesigned. It used to go by the Willowbrook Bridge, mm -hmm. where the Willowbrook Bar is. And then they changed it. And so the bridge that actually goes over the river is low. And for climate change, we've had a lot of flooding down there. And that should actually be raised. The Corona overcrossing was built in 1956. It doesn't have any, it's not safe for bikes, pedestrians, and it's not safe for cars. Oh, it's consistent. Then. It's very consistent. Okay. And so actually we did videoing there yesterday, and we're going to be doing a YouTube on this mm -hmm. and talking about transportation. We're focusing specifically on this area because with the development of the Brody property and now the smart station is going to be um, on the corner of Corona and McDowell. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be 100 and I think 40 or 50 homes on that site. There's 200 homes on the Brody site. Traffic down there is horrendous, but no one on the city council really gets it because they need to get out of their cars and maybe walk a little bit. They need to go down to the east side and check these areas out. You can't look at it in a piece of paper. It's something you have to visualize. And you will see what's happening is truck traffic, these huge 52-footers, because trucks aren't truck and trailers anymore. 52-footers are getting off of Washington Street, inundating McDowell, and going all the way up to, like, the um, Federal Express, where Lagunitas is. We all know where Lagunitas is. Exactly. So a lot of the trucks go up there. And I've actually followed some of these trucks and got out and said, hey, you guys need to start getting off of this area because you are causing traffic problems on Washington Street. They can't make those turns well. Right. And the other day, there was a, tur there was a truck trying to turn onto um, Rainier. They had to back up. Uh, back onto McDowell, then they drove over the sidewalk. And so the city did not prepare for 52-footers. Right. A lot has changed. But even the 18-wheelers are having a problem, and the city needs to address this, and this is something I want to tackle along with transportation. Is it, is it really possible to project out 25 years? Okay. I think you said that. How, how, we, we don't know what technology, what 52 quarters may not have been conceived of. Uh, I mean, this thing's oh, changed. No. Is that, isn't that too far? No, it's not because you have to look at uh, you have to look at how a city grid is. Where where's the city developing? So you look at that first. Uh -huh. And when you see the way a city developing is how you deal with traffic and you deal with truck traffic. So now we would have had, if, if Corona was the interchange crosstown connector, those trucks would be getting off of Corona and they'd be going into the industrial areas instead of, believe it or not, McDowell has a lot of residents that live off McDowell. 
There are a lot of mobile home parks. I don't know how they're going to have to put in um, uh, more lights. Senior citizens are in danger right now of getting out of their homes on McDowell. It is, it is, McDowell is a dangerous road. And, you know, and, and yes, you can project out. You don't have to worry about if it's a 52-footer. We already knew we had 18-wheelers or, you know, two boxes. So we knew that was coming. But the 52-footers have been here actually a long time. So they're, because they're, because I go up to the Eel River and they're trying to cut down these giant redwoods um, at, at the, not Standishiki, but the um, next regional park up or, um, and it's because they're having a hard time getting through this area. But, of course, we're all fighting to make sure these giant redwoods aren't taken down. So 52-footers have been known. So it, it, it is known. Yeah. Just, it doesn't uh, matter. That was just an example of uh, you know, projecting what the reality of 25 years was going to be like and how Everything that... I said 25 years ago is exactly what's happening today. And it okay. would have been alleviated if we would have listened to Caltrans. I had meetings with Caltrans. And I remember with Linka Caro from Caltrans, we're walking down the rail crossing and we're looking up and she's going, God, about Rainier, this is a lot of cement is what she said. Mm-hmm. They've always been a, a, a opposed to it. They've always supported Corona. Mm-hmm. But when you have developers telling you what to do, this is why we're in the traffic jams we're in. And when I first got on the council, I, I proposed, um, I actually ran on fixing the McDowell-Washington intersection. It was a skinny intersection. It was really dangerous. And then we had to get rid of that left-hand turn on the freeway, and we had to do a right-hand turn. Those were really my projects. Those were my babies. I pushed those through, and the uh, the on-ramp, the northbound on-ramp happened in 2012. Right. But I was behind the scenes, believe me, kicking and screaming, making sure, writing letters, that that was going to happen. And it did, and I want to thank David Glass and actually Pap, uh, Pam Torliette for continuing to pushing that project. And it's traffic improvements like that that make traffic flow in a town. We're not going to get anywhere faster, but we might flow better. Another big issue for me for traffic is from the D Street Bridge to Lakeville. Oh. It is like a nightmare, but if you drive down there, go look at the telephone poles that are, that are on the right and left-hand side. Those telephone poles have got to be undergrounded because you can actually widen that roadway and have uh, bikes and pedestrians safely. You could actually have three lanes. Um, one would go straight, one goes to the left on Lakeville, and then you'd have a, the right-hand turn lane on Lakeville. But when we all knew the smart train was happening, and what the city should have done at the time was, was in the general plan, made updates to every rail crossing, and say, this is the development that's happening. Because we knew 25 years ago that Brody Ranch was going to be homes. Mm-hmm. So that's not like a, we, we knew that. So if you know that, you need to go ahead and look at those overcrossings, and we could have widened them at the time. But so now we're going to have to retrofit those. But the good news is, it looks like um, SMART will have money to do that, at least for Corona, we're hoping. But we're not quite sure because, because we didn't plan. And so D Street is another problem we didn't plan. And you could have really planned that well, except Basin Street bought that corner piece of property. And again, Basin Street was instrumental in traffic congestion. Not me, Basin Street. And other developers. Yeah, so so these are things that people crossing. don't realize. Yeah, it's better than that D Street crossing. Ten for ten minutes to get across there. Well, we'll time it. It might not be ten. Yeah. I have actually once for nine minutes. I was going to a meeting and I was there was no traffic really. It was the train. It was a uh-huh. weird right, situation. Right, but right. I still like the train. I think it's a good thing. But what people don't realize when you voted for the train, you voted for development. 
Right. Because and so, that's it's and that's win. exactly, it's and that's what it's going to be. But I think people need to really look at from the D Street Bridge to um, to Lakeville and really look at that and look at those telephone poles. That is what's impeding um, good traffic solutions. So one of the observations I would make about this piece of discussion is that you do your homework. Yes, I do. And you know what you're talking about. People who, other people who do their homework may get a different perspective, but at least people have done their homework. And I don't think anybody's done their homework on these particular rides. Right, but, <laughs> but, but that's, that's really an important and, part. Yes. And, you know, I think that same principle uh, holds true about the, uh, re- relative to the Safeway gas station and some of the issues that have come up over there. Uh, I don't think your article in the uh, your op-ed piece was expressing whether you want the gas station or not. I think you were trying to say what you thought about the nature of the politic of the groups that were being formed uh, to try to oppose it. Well, there's some myths with this, and I want to clarify them today, because um, unfortunately, a lot of the documentation is now on a public server. And so I've, I've seen some of the documents with my names in there and what they've accused me of this group. I've, I've, full disclosure, the owner of the shopping center I've known for a long time. We're not good friends, but um, I was lucky enough during the Hillary campaign that he actually, he donated the building, but he didn't really donate it. He got it, he got it a write-off with the Democrats. So it was not me. I just, I just facilitated the use of the building, but there was actually paperwork. So people have accused me of of being paid by these people. They've accused me of being paid by Safeway and accused me of being paid by Mark Friedman of Fulcrum. Well, I assure you, I didn't get paid because the most important thing is when I look at a project, I look at mitigations and what we can actually accomplish. So I met with Adrian Saslow, who's Uh part of No Gas Here, and I told her, I said, I think this project's going to go through. It's a permitted project. You need to get mitigation, a list of mitigations to the city to protect your neighborhood. Because I happened to be looking at ADA issues before this, I ever knew about this gas station. And so I said, I will help you write a list. So I wrote a list of over $200,000 of mitigations that I wanted the city council to add on to this project. If I was working for Safeway and Fulcrum, I would not have done, they would not have wanted me to do a list of over $200,000. Adrian Saslow never worked with me on a list. I put that list in. I spoke about it uh, at the council meeting also, and the council didn't put one of those mitigations in. So what, what, this, what this group is really doing, they are actually working with other gas station owners. It's in documents, and that is a fact. And now they're a 501c3, and so they want people to donate. But when you donate, what, what a 501c3 is really doing is giving these other, these other opposing gas station owners a way of putting their money without being known who they are. And I believe in full disclosure, and this, this group has not been full disclosure. There are 7,000 emails out there. And they have made comments that I created a Brown Act violation, which I did not do, because you can't, you know, one person can't create a Brown Act violation for a city council. I've been accused of working for Fulcrum and Safeway, and a lot more. And it's really defamation of character. There, there are legal issues here, and they are now all on a public server at the school district. This started in 2013, when a, a principal met with one of the, um, the owners of the gas station. So they met in 2013, and so this has been going on for a long time, and the public doesn't know. No gas here sounds great. 
um, 16 pumps. I mean, it was a it was a master of a campaign. But I like to keep things honest, and I was willing to take the chopping block for it. And I'm not a gas station lover. There are some issues with getting in and out of there. It's not going to cause the traffic that they're projecting because you already go shopping there. There are some issues with it. And, and I'm not pretending that there aren't. But it's not going to have the impacts that you thought. I brought. Uh, I was driving to Dixon, and I got off at Dixon because I was getting a dog with my friend. And we went into a McDonald's to use their bathroom. And I had noticed a Safeway gas station driving in because I always see everything around me. I never drive just straight ahead. So I said to my friend, who's, who's totally against the gas station, I said, did you see anything? And she said, no. We drove out, and I said, what do you see there? And she goes, nothing. It was the Safeway gas station. And the next day, I had to go to Davis with another woman who was opposed to it. I did the same stop and same thing. She had no idea what it was. But when you talk to people about it, that opposition goes away. But is it a great project? Do I like it? No. Do I like gas stations? No. And I think they're going to be phasing out. But we have still another 30 years of gas cars. And gas prices, gas prices in Petaluma are the highest around. We have a gas cartel here, and that's why the prices are high, and that's why everybody goes to Safeway in Nevada, and I go to um, Costco. Costco yeah. So that's that's the Safeway gas station deal, and it's not over yet because they're going to court. And today, this, right now, as we're talking, is their conference, pre-trial conference. You're right. right? That's right. We're sitting here, and they're talking about it. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, it remains to be seen. It's a cast of characters. How do you, how do you uh, obviously, some of the positions you've taken have uh, evoked responses in the community, to yeah. put it mildly. Yes. How do you handle all that? Well, you know, it's really funny. Well, I believe that, um, well, sometimes it's hard, mm-hmm. but you get up the next day and you keep moving forward. Uh, right. My community is more important than what people say about me mm-hmm. because I will say the newspapers have helped make this, make me look like a, a very negative person. I'm really not. I really just project out. I look at the big picture. I care about the community. And, and when Basin Street got me out of office, from 2002 to 2019, I still have letters that I write to the city. And all on the public record because I make sure it goes to the city clerk so it is on the public record. And what a friend of mine observed recently, because he was looking through documents, he's a political wonk kind of like I am, he goes, it's really amazing. You have more documents there than most people. <laughs> and, and that kind of made me feel really good because I have continued, I never thought I lost an election, even though it's sad to lose an election. But I continued to stay involved. You only lose, lose an election when you sit back and you go into your hole and you don't come out and you don't speak out, or you speak out once in a while. Well, Dennis, believe it or not, our time is wow, almost up. that's fast. Did it not go quickly? It, it did. did go quickly. <laughs> I can and go fast. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for caring so deeply about our community, for the energy that you put in to letting our government know, letting the community know your thoughts about things and making people check things out and understand things. And thank you for being part of our our program today. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed being on it. Thank you. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California.
costume. 